God's doing a, a great work in, in, through him, through his church, and through his leadership team. So uh, let's just welcome Justin Buzzard. Well, hey, Mercy Hill. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Um, we're going to have fun today. So American culture, pretty big on first impressions. It's a big part of our culture here. You want to put your best foot forward, have real good first impressions with people. So I remember uh, a first date I had in, in high school. And what I did was uh, right before going to uh, pick up this girl, um, I kind of pulled over on the side of the road before pulling up to this house, got out of my car, and I did a bunch of push-ups just so I'd show up. And so my chest would look a little bit bigger, so I'd look a little bit um, stronger. You know, I wanted to just wanted to seem strong, you know, when I picked up this girl. I remember my first job interview. My first job was a busboy at a restaurant. And uh, I came into this waiting room and had to fill out the short questionnaire before the interview. And one of the first questions was, what, what are some of your greatest strengths? And I, I mean, I wrote paragraph after paragraph on that thing. Then the next question was, what are some of your weaknesses? I just wrote none. I uh, just wrote, wrote that on there and then came into the actual interview and, and was asked that question. So what, I see you have no weaknesses. I'm like, yeah, nope, none, no weaknesses. Because I, I wanted to get hired. I didn't want to talk about any of my weaknesses. And, and here's the issue is I think often in the church is is where the real us doesn't show up. We want to put our best foot forward. We don't want people to know the mess of our lives. And and, and so we're deprived of so much because the real us isn't, isn't showing up. I, I shared with my church two weeks ago the most hypocritical moment of my life, and it was this. I was, I was in high school, and I, in high school I was, I was this Christian leader. I was captain of the football team, this Christian leader guy. I mean, I followed God. I did what was right. And I was with a bunch of friends, and we all showed up at this friend's house. I think it was like eight or ten guys. And one guy shows up with a porn movie. And he has this porn movie and he wants to show it to, to all the guys. And I, and I took a stand. I stood up there in front of all the guys and said, guys, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to look at this. I'm going home. I'm leaving. I won't stand for this. And I went home. And you know what I did? And I went home and I looked at porn by myself. Oh no. Exactly. <laughs> but why did I do that? 16 at the time, and by God's grace, porn has not been an issue in my life since high school. But why did I do that? I, I was okay being the sinner that no one else could see, but, but I had to keep up the persona. I had to keep up on the outside. This is, this is who I am. I'm this guy, and I, make, I take these stands, and I don't do that. But I was sinning secretly. What we're going to look at today is, is the book of Jonah. And Jonah is this book where the real God meets and encounters the real us. And I'm talking about the real God, the God of the Bible, the, the, the God who's holy, the God who he, he interve- interferes, just intervenes in our life, and we have to reckon with him, and we have to deal with him, and, and he wants to meet, and he wants to encounter the real us, not a pretend us, not a fake us that puts on a fake, maybe church smile, and everything's okay in my life, and I'm not a sinner. I'm talking about the real us. Um, I, I was going to preach, because we're in Jonah at, at Garden City, I was going to preach the first sermon in this series, going to give you an introduction to the book of Jonah, but I was working this morning on the sermon that I'm going to preach this afternoon at our church, and I just thought, uh, we're just, we're, I'm just going to do the same sermon. So it's the fourth sermon in a, in a six-sermon series on the book of Jonah, and I'll try to get you up to speed with this book. I see you want to pass out Bibles. Is that what I'm seeing? Okay, so if you need a Bible... Raise your hand. Is that what you do? Raise your hand. Get get the Bible. Okay. Yeah. Jonah's towards the back of, of your Old Testament, and 
I think what we all want most is, is humans, is we want to be known and loved. We want other people to know us, the real us, the true us. With Gordon, if you've seen the movie Wall Street that was redone recently, the second version that just came out, Michael Douglas, he's the character Gordon Gecko in the movie, and he says, great line in the movie, he says, we're all mixed bags. And that's what we are as humans. We are all mixed bags. We are are a mixture of just strengths and weaknesses and and beautiful stuff and really broken stuff. And and I think we want to be known and and we want to be loved. We want someone to know the real, true, full us and and still love us. And we've got to wrestle in the book of Jonah with this question. Can can God know the real us and still love us? And we're in Silicon Valley and what, what is life all about here? It's about success. It's about chasing success and being successful. And I think we're in great danger here. I think we're in great danger here being successful at everything other than what really, truly matters in life. So, so turn the book of Jonah towards the back of your Old Testament and try to just get you up to speed real quick. It, short book, 48 verses. Only 48 verses in this, in this book. Four chapters, just 48 verses. 48 verses of dynamite. 48 verses, when you really reckon with these verses, these verses will mess you up. These verses will change you. We're experiencing God do some really powerful things in our, in our church as we're going through this book. Um, God, what he does is God gets a hold of this man named Jonah. Jonah had been this very successful prophet of God. I mean, he's, he's Christian of the year. He's, he's powerful. He's mighty. God has used him in incredible ways. God gets a hold of Jonah at the very start of the book and says, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, this great city, this wicked city, and I want you to call out against it. But what does Jonah do? Jonah runs away from God. We learn really quickly in this book that there are two different ways to run from God. You can be like these evil Ninevites who on the outside live a very rebellious, reckless life and they want nothing to do with God. That's one way to run from God. But another way to run from God is, is the Jonah way, where maybe you, you, you show up at church each week and you, and you put on kind of a nice facade. You, you obey the rules. You keep the rules. You do all the right things. But really deep in your heart, you, you're living a double life and you're, you're not walking with God. You're, you're not following God. And Jonah starts getting exposed through this book as he's encountering the word of God and this mission that God is giving him. So Jonah flees. He runs away from God's call in his life. But God's persistent. God, God runs after runaways. That's the God that we serve. He runs after people who run away from him. That in, any of us here who have a relationship with the living God, we have it because of him. Not because we decided to follow him, but, but God pursued us in our sin and, and made us alive. And, and, and now we know him and now we worship him. So God's persistent. He goes after Jonah. He tries to get on the ship to Tarshish, to, goes in the opposite direction of the city of Nineveh gets a hold of him, and, and, and now now we come to the point in the story where Jonah, I mean, you, some of you know the story, he's been swallowed by this great fish, and, and still Jonah has, has not repented. Still this man is this reluctant prophet who, who has not yet owned who he really is. He's not repented of his sin before God. And we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3. So let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So what we have here now is is God gives this exact same call he gave Jonah at the beginning of the book, gives him the exact same call, arise, go to Nineveh, go, go to this city, God still wants to use this man who has run away from him. I I find it so incredible, so interesting that God makes no mention of Jonah's failure. He makes no mention of his disobedience. And there's a a grace in that. God doesn't even mention his failure. Jonah's so aware of his failure, God doesn't mention it. And, And this is the only prophet in the Bible to be given his assignment twice. There is no other prophet in the scriptures who runs away from their calling. Jonah's the only one who does it. And this is the only prophet who's given his assignment from God two times. I want to tell you there are plenty of ships to Tarshish, plenty of ways you can run away from God's call on your life, but the greatest adventure you can give your life to is to follow God's call. It's to lay your life in submission to his call on your life and and to follow it. And now Jonah's actually going to follow this call. I spent time this, this week with an old mentor of mine. I used to live in Santa Barbara, and I would babysit um, for this one family. They had three young sons, and I would babysit their sons and do my laundry at their house. It was this good deal. I'd do my laundry there, and I'd watch the kids. And I hadn't seen this old mentor in about uh, seven years, and he was in town, uh, the, the guy, the husband of the family. He came over to our house this week, and it was great. Now I have three sons, so it's like our, our, my, I have the family he used to have, and I used to babysit for them. And so he got to, got to see our kids, and it was a blast. It was wonderful. And he was telling me this. He was talking about the last couple of years of his life, and he's um, he's 50 now. And he was talking about a conversation he had recently with one of his friends. And one of his friends said that he and his wife now, all the decisions that they're making now, they're entirely based around their own safety and security and comfort. And he was saying, man, the older we get, we're, we're just basing our decisions around our safety and our security and, and, and our comfort. And, and, and as a Christian family. And I, this is what concerns me about our life in the church in Silicon Valley, is I think we can get so wrapped up in our safety and our security and our comfort that, that we don't want to heed God's call. And, and we're going to miss out on the grand adventure he has for our lives because we're so wrapped up in, our, in ourselves. And, and so how's Jonah going to respond to this call that comes to him a second time? Verse 3, you're kind of, there's some suspense with verse 3. We know Jonah. This is a guy who runs from God. Verse 3, it says, So Jonah went, suspense, suspense, to Nineveh. He goes this time. He actually obeys God's call, and he, and he comes to Nineveh. Uh, this would have been a long journey. Uh, this, this fish has, has vomited him up. The, the scriptures say that this fish vomited Jonah on the dry land. 
And it's an image of, of, of the hypocritical Jonah. It's almost like this fish couldn't even stomach this hypocritical guy and vomits him onto the shore. Now Jonah has a 600-mile journey through the desert to reach the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Nineveh is 250 miles north of modern-day Baghdad. It's, it's in Iraq. You can go there today. And this, this was a great city. Scripture, uh, throughout the book of Jonah, four different times, it's called this great city. Great city. Big city. Influential city. Just a, a cultural center. And, and our God loves cities. This city of Nineveh, is, it's on God's lips at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, this city. And, and Jonah travels there. God's after the city. God is after this city. And, and I think we're meant to see that this city, it's, it's an image of his concern for all cities. Um, God loves city, cities. God loves people. Uh, cities are the place where there are more people than animals. And since God really loves people, man, he must really love cities. I was done writing a book that's going to come out uh, in, this, in the spring called Why Cities Matter. It's about the fact that God loves cities. Cities are places where there are a lot of people. And man, what a city we're in. And we're going to talk a little bit more about, about our city. God loves cities, and, he, and, he, and he's after the city of Nineveh. It says that Jonah takes this uh, three days journey. Or he goes to the city, and it's a three days journey in breadth, the city. Mean, meaning it would take three days to walk across this city. And we, we know the ancient borders of the city of Nineveh. The city, the, kind of the city limits itself wasn't a three-day's journey. It was more like a one-day's journey. But when you take the surrounding towns, kind of in suburbs of this great city, it would have been a three-day's journey in breadth. And, and what it says in the beginning of the book of Jonah is that not only is this city of Nineveh great, it's, it's evil. And, and Nineveh was. Nineveh was Israel, the nation of Israel's greatest enemy. A very evil city. There was a, a king... And he was around a century before, before Jonah's time, before Jonah came to the city of Nineveh, um, King Ashurnasapal II. And, and he reports, there's, there's this historical record, he reports on this battle uh, that, that he and the Ninevites fought. And in this battle, 3,000 people were, were killed. They killed 3,000 people. Many captives were taken. This is what he says about this battle. This is just an image for you of how evil the city is. Many of the captives I burned in a fire... Many I took alive, from some I cut off their hands to the wrist, from others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eye of many of the soldiers, I burnt their young men and women to death. Now, now it's a hundred years later though, and, and, and Nineveh, the city actually has been in some decline, and perhaps maybe now these people will be more humble and more open and receptive to a message. So Jonah shows up in the city with a message. And what's his message? Earlier in chapter 1, God said, go to the city, call out against it. That's what he says again in, in, in chapter 3. Call out against this city. Against it. Against it. It's a, it's a message of judgment. What does he say? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, imagine, imagine this. This it's only it's only five words in, in, in Hebrew. More words in our translation. Imagine the strange man walks into this city, and, and he travels a day's length into the city. He's into the center of the city, and he just starts walking about the streets of this city, proclaiming this message. Yet forty days, and you're going to be overthrown. 
Eugene Peterson, in his translation of this verse, he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be smashed. And the message spreads like wildfire. Yet 40 days and your city's going to be smashed. And your city's going to be overthrown. And they deserve it. They deserve it. They're sinful, wicked people who have been in rebellion against the one true God. And that's all they deserve is judgment. It's number 40. It's a number used throughout Scripture for, for, for testing and for judgment. It was Noah It was Noah and the ark for 40 days. God's wrath reigned on the world. As rain poured down and everyone dies except those who were in an ark. We know what 40 days is all about. God's destroyed cities before Sodom and Gomorrah. Gone like that. God's wrath against an evil and wicked city. And the threat, the threat sounds unconditional. Like it, it's, it's going to happen. But there is a condition implied in this, in this threat. The, the verb used here is the, the word overthrown. Um, a better way to say it is, is overturned. And it's kind of this word that has double meanings. It could mean overturned or it could mean turned. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overturned or yet 40 days in Nineveh will be, will be turned. We'll do a 180. We'll, we'll experience a great reversal. We'll be transformed. There's, there's a note of hope in this message. And Jonah knows this, but Jonah wants these people to die. I mean, we've been getting to know, you haven't been in the sermon series with us, but Jonah is this, Jonah is this complex guy. Jonah is this guy who on the outside presents himself as Christian of the year. But there is so much hidden stuff in this guy. The real Jonah is starting to surface through this book, and we see that this is a man who, he is fine, he is okay if he gets maybe a little bit of grace from God, but he's not going to extend it. He's not going to give grace to other people, especially not these wicked Ninevites. He hasn't yet come to grips with how wicked his own heart is and how much grace God has extended to him. So Jonah's words, they put the, it puts the fear of God in, in, into the Ninevites. The Ninevites are afraid. And in a relationship with the living God, it starts with fear. If you want a relationship with the living God, it, it, it does begin with fear. And this is a theme throughout the whole Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you're going to start getting some wisdom on what life is about, what God is about, who you really are, it begins with a fear of God. And the turning point of the book is in verse 5. The whole book it just hinges on, on, on verse 5. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 5. Um, our text tells us they believe. And actually, in, in the Hebrew, the very first word of the text is this word believed. It's, it's just driving home this emphasis. These people believe this message, not on day 40, but on day 1. Immediately, day 1, this strange man comes in with this message, and they, and they believe. In this book, I mean, it's a short book of 48 verses. Five verses of this 48-verse book are devoted to describing their repentance. This is the heart of the book. This whole city repents. And off of this sermon, I mean, five words. Like, I want to preach like that. Five-word sermon? Like, how long does it take to prepare that? Like, here, here's my message. But off this five-word sermon, which is primarily just judgment whole city 
repents. It says from the greatest of them to the least of them. This whole city, they, they, they repent and they, and they cry out to God and, and, and just start thinking about this. This is the action God wants from us. That, that's where I'm going with this sermon. That's, uh, that's what I'm going to give to you guys today. That's what I'm going to give to my church today. The action God wants from us, from all of us, is repentance. Even the king repents. Even, he, the, this great city has a great king. And it says that this king, and it's so symbolic, he's, this great king has a great throne, and he's on his throne. It says he, he, he gets up from his throne, from this position of power. And he, and he takes off his robes, his robes would symbolize his power and his authority. Takes it off, and just gets on his knees. Covers himself in, in dust and sackcloth. And he issues this proclamation. And he sends this proclamation throughout the the whole city. He says to this whole city, I want you to fast. I want you to get down on your knees. I want you to repent. I want you to cry out mightily to God. He says, even I want the animals to repent and to to lie in dust and to fast. And and that's just because this was an agrarian society. The animals were, were deeply embedded with their economy. So this would be like today, issuing a proclamation like, I want our corporations of Silicon Valley to repent. Like our economy, like we must repent of our wrongdoing before the one true God. And what does he say? Call out mightily to God. He says, who knows? Like, who knows? Maybe he's going to have mercy on us. Who knows what he's going to do? But I think this God might do that. Who knows? He says, maybe he'll relent from his, from his fierce anger. That's what he says. Maybe God will turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's like, are you feeling this, the weight of this message that comes into the city? These people are aware of the one true God and they're aware that he is a God of fierce anger. It's, it's judgment. Like, do you know our God is a God of fierce anger? Fierce, not just anger. Fierce anger. And they're feeling this. And so they call out to God. The whole city does. They call out mightily to God. They repent of their evil ways, of their sin. They, you know what repentance is? Repent, repentance is getting off of your throne. Repentance is getting off of your throne, not being God of your own life anymore, and getting on your knees and recognizing the true king. And this city does that. And, and repentance re- rehumanizes people. It puts everything right <laughs> into the true perspective. I mean, this guy isn't the king anymore. He's just a guy sitting in ashes. Not the king. All, all pretension just goes away. All facades go away. But not for Jonah. The city is repenting, but Jonah's still this guy who isn't really reckoning with, with, with who he really is and who his God really is. And the pretension is still, still there's still no repentance in Jonah. The whole evil, wicked city has repented, but, but God's prophet hasn't yet repented. So what will God do? That's the tension we're in right now. What will God do? What will he do to the city? What will he do to Jonah? This is the real God meeting now the real Nineveh. Like Nineveh's being honest. They're, they're not hiding their sin. They're being honest about their wickedness. They're being honest about their sin. Humility. They're, they're, they're humble before the face of God. And What's God do? 
grace. He forgives them. He extends his grace to them. He relents from this disaster he was going to bring to them. And it's the greatest revival that has ever happened in the history of the world. That everyone in this whole city repents and receives the grace of God. And now worships the one true God. Jesus, centuries later, Jesus, the whole book of Jonah is meant to prepare us for the ministry of Jesus. The whole Old Testament does that. Centuries later, Jesus talks about Nineveh and holds up Nineveh as this grand example. Jesus is going around to these cities that will not repent of their sin. Cities full of self-righteous Pharisees and people who claim that they know God and they will not repent of their sin. He goes, Nineveh is better than you. You're judged by Nineveh. The city of Nineveh repented and you will not. And so here's my reaction to this, to this book. Like I, I read these 48 verses. I read these 10 verses. And then I think about our city. I think about us. I think about me. And my reaction is tremendous fear and hope at the same time. This should make us very afraid of our city and of our God and what God might do in our condition. And at the same time, it should make us incredibly hopeful over what could happen. We live in a great city too. We live in a great city, our, our city, Silicon Valley. Three days journey in breadth as well to walk the borders of this place. I was reading a, a columnist in the San Jose Mercury News last week and he was describing Silicon Valley and I, I thought he described it really well in one sentence. He said, people move here from all over the planet to change the world forever. It's a great description of Silicon Valley. People move here from all over the planet to change the world forever. And there's, there's so many incredible things going on here. Like, we are one of the most influential cities in the world. What's happening here is changing the world. Our corporations here, the things that we're doing here, it's incredible. And I, I love this place. I love living here. I want to live here my whole life. I love it. We're a great city. But we're also an evil city. We're also a self-centered city. Some of you guys know... Dale Pearson, he came from Mercy Hill, helped us plan our church. Some of you guys know Dale's story two months ago. He was stabbed 13 times in the head and the face while working, painting. He's going to be okay. Saw this man in the hospital, though, visited him a few hours after it happened. He's never seen someone stabbed. We, we now have a saying in our church that happened on a Monday. We say, like, like today isn't so bad. At least you were not, not stabbed 13 times in the head and face. Day's pretty good. We've had, um, in San Jose, 32 murders so far this year. That was as of Wednesday. I don't know if that's changed since. We've had, we had seven murders in 10 days, which is the worst the city's ever had. I don't know if you know the story of Gail, a homeless woman. We don't know her full identity. Uh, just know her first name, Gail. And she was uh, slaughtered by someone who came at her with a samurai sword last week. It happened in our city. And we're so caught up in our success here in Silicon Valley. We want to be su- successful. We're like a bunch of kings on thrones, worshiping ourselves while our back is turned to the one true God and our back is turned to the needs around us. I think uh, that's, that's the posture of Silicon Valley, I think. Sitting on our thrones, maybe our faces buried in a screen. Back turned to God, back turned to the people of the city. And I, don't, I think the church fits right in much of the time. 
I think the church of Silicon Valley much of the time just fits right in to the culture of Silicon Valley. Do, do we really want a mission? Do we really want to be a church that really does live on a mission for God's glory and for the benefit of others? Do we really want to lay our life down so that others will flourish? Do we really want that? I have a whole section here where I'm going to kind of go off. I'll, I'll save that for my church. won't do that with you guys. But, I mean, when is the last time you repented? Scriptures are really clear that it's to be a daily thing as a Christian. Like, the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. We come face to face every day with the one true God, a holy God, and daily we come face to face with the real us, which is a sinner. And daily we're called to repent of our sin. And we need, we need to repent here in Silicon Valley of our self-absorption, being so absorbed in ourselves, not God. And I think we also need to repent of our small vision. I think the church in Silicon Valley as a whole has a very small vision for what God could do here. And I think we need to repent of that. I was reading the Pew Research Foundation just came out with this research that showed um, what's happened with the American middle class over the last 10 years and how there's been this major drop in income. And uh, someone was, <laughs> they interviewed someone and someone was stating where they, where they felt the blame was due for, for this condition. And, and I read this just as an example for us to really understand the nature of, of true repentance and fake repentance. So I think a lot of times we, we think we're repenting, but we're really just giving excuses. And, and this person says this, last name's Revick. Revick blames President Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush and baby boomers for her generation's afflictions and puts much of the onus on Wall Street. Like, that's a lot of people to blame. For like, baby, How many baby boomers are there? Like, mil- no, I don't mean here. I mean, like, in the world. Like, America. Millions. Like, Reagan was, I mean, I think I was like six when Reagan was president. Cast blame on all these individuals for the economic condition. Maybe some of that blame is warranted. But isn't that often how we talk to God about our lives? Just we're victims. Like, real repentance is what the Ninevites did. Like the evil people, the pagan people. That's real repentance. They come before God and they just say, it's our fault. It's my fault. I'm a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Fake repentance happens in the church a lot. Hey, God, I'm sorry. I mean, if so-and-so hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done that, but still, you know, I'm sorry. See, we're talking about the real God and the real you. The real God and and the real you. Actor Tommy Lee Jones, I read this interview about him this week, and, and he said this. He said, the world's not a very comfortable place if you have a nightmare to face. The world's not a very comfortable place if you have a nightmare to face. And, and, and that's who God is. When, when, you, when you first start to think about who he is, like, you first got to deal with a nightmare. Because God is holy, and we're not. There's a gap. And so to face his judgment, it's a nightmare. But that's what Silicon Valley faces. It's what we face. 
and, and judgment is coming. The real God is going to judge the real you. Not the pretend facade person that maybe everyone else sees. Yet 40 days and Silicon Valley will be overthrown. That, that's the message of this book. Yet 40 days and you will be overthrown. See, our, our city faces a destiny of fierce anger. That's the destiny we face. Fierce anger. And I, I can't say that I love you. I can't say that I love this city that I say I love and, unless I tell you this. Unless I say this. Our God is holy and he's angry. He has great reason to be angry. It was a long time ago, nearly 300 years ago, it was June, June 8th, 1741, that arguably the most famous sermon ever in America was preached. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached it in the midst of a revival. God was just getting a hold of, of spiritually dead people and saving them. And for those of you here who don't know Jesus, let me just be so crystal clear on this. Like, you are spiritually dead unless God does something to you. The Bible is clear on this. We are all spiritually dead people. We're a corpse. We can't do it. We walk around like we're alive, but we are spiritually dead. God saved. It's amazing. God saved my neighbor, my next door neighbor, K1, two weeks ago. For a year, my wife and I have been building a relationship with him, and his wife have been sharing the gospel with him. He's been coming to our neighborhood groups for five months and, and meeting other Christians and hearing the gospel. He's come to our church now three times. God saved him two weeks ago on a Sunday at our church, and we had a, he and his wife over for dinner last night. We're hanging out, and he just was talking about this very reality. He's like, Justin, I was dead before. I was dead. Like, I, I, I see it now. He's like, I'm actually alive now. Like, I'm awake to God and to truth and to reality. And so those of you here who don't know God, you are spiritually dead and what God has to do is he has to perform a miracle. He, he has to raise you up. He has to resurrect you. He has to give you new life. That's what he has to do to our city. So this was happening during the Great Awakening. God was getting a hold of spiritually dead people throughout America and, and saving them. And in the midst of this, Jonathan Edwards preaches a sermon. I'm going to read three paragraphs of this sermon to you because I went back and I reread this whole sermon and I just thought, I, I have to preach this. I have to say this. 300 years later, I have to say these three paragraphs and they're hard. I told you this wasn't going to be an easy sermon. I told you it's dangerous. Don't worry, there's, there's relief coming. But I have to give this to you. Here's, here's what it says. This is, this is like towards the end of this heavy, heavy sermon. And in the midst of this sermon, people were... Crazy things were happening in this church as he was preaching it. Lives were getting saved at that very moment. People were yelling out gra like gasps at, at the horror of what God's fierce anger must be like. He said this, The bow of God's wrath is, is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new are in the hands of an angry God. However you may have reformed your life in many things, 
and may have had religious affections and may keep up a form of religion in your families and in the house of God, it is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you, those who have died, see that it was so with them. For their destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they were expecting nothing of it and while they were saying, peace and safety. Now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. We depend on a lot of thin air and empty shadows in Silicon Valley. He continues. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast in the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you was suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. And I have one more paragraph for us. Please think about your own condition and our city. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator And nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. I'm talking about the real God and the real you. The real God and the real Silicon Valley. We want to be known and loved. And what do we encounter here? Being known, truly known. All our sin, all our wickedness, and and being judged. Our greatest fear. It's what we fear more than anything else is ultimate judgment. And we all deserve hell. We all deserve it. There's a great battle in this book, in the book of Jonah between the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. And the heart of Jonah wants to stop at judgment. And that be the last word. But the heart of God doesn't stop at judgment. 
judgment opens the door to grace. This is why a relationship with God starts with fear. This is why when we're talking about God, we've got to first talk about his judgment. Because when you face this judgment, when you face the judgment of God, you realize your only hope is grace. Not fixing your life. Not trying harder. Not some better behavior. Your only hope is for God to save you. Your only hope is His grace. Your only hope is deliverance. And the reason that God is withholding hell to some of you today who have not turned to Him, and the reason God is withholding, and listen to me, the reason God is withholding hell from people you know and care about and love and people in this city is to create an opportunity for repentance. He's withholding it by his mercy. There is one thing more fierce than God's anger. And that's grace. More fierce than God's anger is God has fierce grace. His grace is, his grace is fierce. You know what happened? Is the, the king of kings, not the king of some Assyrian empire, some dinky little thing that God could wipe out in a second, The king of kings, he got off of his throne in heaven and he he, he crossed heaven and and he came to earth to rescue you, to rescue us. And, and what happened is, is Jesus experienced the fierce anger of God's wrath on that cross so that we wouldn't have to. And that is what he experienced on that cross. Fierce anger. The wrath of God against all of our sin, Jesus, Jesus bore that punishment so that we wouldn't have to. It's, it's called the great exchange. It's, it's called this great exchange, and it's the best news in the world that, that Jesus took our punishment so that we could receive God's favor, so that we could receive God's love. See, two people can pay for your sins. There are two people who can pay for your sins. Jesus can pay for your sins. Or you can pay for your sins. You want Jesus to pay for your sins. You don't, you don't want to pay for your sins. It's a big difference here in this book between Jonah's sense of justice and God's sense of justice. Jonah's sense of justice is God wipe out the Ninevites. These are evil, wicked people. Kill them. God's justice is I will take my own son and I will kill my son so that I can spare the Ninevites. Do you see how fierce God's grace is? Do you see the lengths that he went to to bring this message to us today in Silicon Valley? He he set his love on us when we were at our worst. He set his love on us when we had our backs turned to him and wanted nothing to do with him. The Bible is is the story of, of good things happening to bad people because a very bad thing happened to the one good man. The one good man, the Savior of the world, Jesus, a very bad thing happened to him. He, he bore the cost of our sin. It, Philip Yancey calls this the atrocious math of the gospel. Our math doesn't work this way. We should have to pay for our sins. Justice. This is the atrocious math of the gospel. That one man could pay for the sins of the whole world. It's free for us. It's free for us. It's grace. 
so costly to God. And this is the only belief system. Christianity is the only belief system where God both makes the demands and he meets the demands. He makes the demands, be holy as I am holy. And he meets the demand. Jesus lives for us. Jesus dies for us. You know what, friends? We have the best news in this city. Like, Are we awake to this, Mercy Hill Church? We have the best news in the city. No one else has this news. This news saves lives. It's going to save lives today. We have the best news in the city. We, we can come to sinners and we can announce this news. God's grace is bigger than your sin. God's grace is bigger than your sin. God's grace is bigger than your sin. Your sins are forgiven. Is there a better news to hear? Your sins are are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That, that was the announcement made from Calvary, made from that hill as Christ sat, as Christ hung on that cross. It is finished, is what he said. I have paid the price for your sin. The work is done. You're reconciled to God. He knows you and he loves you. He knows the worst about you, everything about you. He knows you and he loves you. He knows you and he loves you. And, and, and God is not, if you've trusted in Christ, God is not angry with you. You are not a sinner in the hand of an angry God. You're a son, you're a daughter held in the hands of a God who adores you and loves you because of what a son has done for you. And this love is changing me. This is why I do what I do. Like His love is changing me. Like I've never been loved like this, the way he loves me. It has nothing to do with me, everything to do with him. It's a fierce grace. So how could you reject this? How could you ever reject this? I don't know how anyone can reject this. It shows how wicked the human heart can be that we could reject news like this. And so if you're someone here who's not a believer and you're going to reject this news, just know your blood is not on my hands. You will be held accountable for what you've heard, and you have heard the truth. You've heard the good news. Your blood is not on my hands. The only way to access this grace is honesty. I'm going to use four words interchangeably. They're all the same thing. Honesty, humility, but the real you showing up. Repentance. That's all repentance is, is honesty. It's being honest about who you really are. It's being honest about your condition, honest about who God is, is and coming before him humbly. But the message of this passage is get off of your throne. Get, get off of your throne. Maybe some of you want to play king and just pretend like you're king, not be honest about the real you. I urge you not to do that. I think the only way that you can truly repent is by encountering this unconditional love. When you know that you can be unconditionally loved like this, you can get honest about who you are. And you can repent. So, so I'm going to ask us to do something un- uncomfortable. This is what the king did. The king of Nineveh, he was here. One day he was in charge of his empire, in charge of his city. And then a message came that changed everything. And what did the king do? He got down on his knees and he repented. And that's what I want to ask all of us to do. Let's get down on our knees and let's repent. And I want to tell you something.
this is the only posture we ought to have to this city. As we come before a city in desperate need of the grace of God, this is the only posture that we ought to have of this city. We are no better than anyone else. If God's grace has spared us, if God's grace has saved us, we come to our city on our knees and we announce this news and we urge people to repent and to receive this grace. Let's, I don't see why God can't do in Silicon Valley what he did in Nineveh. I read the same Bible as you. I don't see why God can't do this to our city. Let's pray. God, we repent before you. We're honest before you about the fact that we're just mixed bags. We're a mess. We're sinners. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what you have done to take care of our great problem. And and sink that more and more deeply into our hearts, what you've done for us, the extent of your grace for us. And we ask that you would come and, and, and bring your thunder and save lives in the city. We pray that this gospel would go out. And that our city would have the same reaction as Nineveh. That they would meet you, that you would do what you did with my neighbor, Kate Wan. That you would turn people who are spiritually dead into worshipers of you. This man worships you now and he loves you. I want to see you do that to thousands more here. God, use Mercy Hill Church. Use Mercy Hill Church beyond their wildest dreams and imagination of what you could do through them. Use this, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.